0: Um, I got, I'm Tom Woolley. I got asked last week. I think my boss, Steve Bree, who some of you may know, uh, basically said I was doing this talk. Um, I'm in the military. I'm an anaesthetist here. And, uh, I don't think, I can't remember what you asked me to talk about, but I'm going to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> bleeding, which I think is sort of bleeding and clotting and a bit of inflammation and stuff like that. So I think you're all ED anaesthetics, general medicine, predominantly. Any anything different? And you, you're all going to do all of that eventually, bits of it. So, uh, uh, hopefully it'll be um at the end of it you should find you're confused uh, you don't know what the right answer is and uh, you don't really know what the cause of all the problems are which is exactly the same as what i am and so uh, then you'll be the same as everybody else because it's a bit complicated and no one really knows the answer um so that's a, a really good goal for the beginning of a lecture isn't it and uh, i know, i think i must be just before lunch aren't i so i want to go fishing so we'll be as quick as we can uh, right, clotting clotting is, what do we clot for? we clot to stop bleeding, that's the clotting bit we also want to stop infection getting in by covering the wound and then we want to repair we want to repair that wound afterwards there's no point in stopping the bleeding if we can't repair the wound so clotting is probably a subset of inflammation which th- therefore is going to be really complicated because no one really understands inflammation and uh, it's only one part of the process so we used to learn it like this if, if you remember, I don't know if I've got a laser pointer is there anything here? No, well I've lost mine. So we used to learn it like this, where you had the extrinsic pathway, the intrinsic pathway. I don't know what you learned at medical school. Did you learn this, or did you learn the new stuff? So this is rubbish. Uh, this doesn't work, and it's not true. This final bit... Does that come up? There? Yeah, this final bit is quite important, the final common pathway, and it's the thrombin being produced, converting the fibrinogen to fibrin that's really important. And it's, the, it's how this thrombin... That's not work. It's how you get this thrombin burst. I'll talk a little bit about it in a minute. It's produced. It's the important bit in making clot. Um, So, what do we? What's the current clotting theory? And it's. It's probably a bit more than theory now. It's been around for 15, 20 years. But essentially, normally you have the blood going through the blood vessel, and that's fine. If you have a damage in the blood vessel, you get exposure of tissue factor, which is in the sort of subendothelial matrix, and you also get collagen. So there's a couple of things happen. The collagen binds to platelets, the platelets activate, and the tissue factor binds to factor VII, um, and causes this this whole process to start. So, factor seven is the only factor in the blood that uh, is in its active form normally. About one percent of it's active. So, the tissue factor-factor seven complex is the, is the primer, if you like, and it. It produces a small amount of thrombin, this little bit here. Okay, not very much, not enough to do anything in any particular way, shape, or form. But it produces a small amount of thrombin, and that little bit of thrombin will do various things. It'll, it'll, um, it'll activate platelets. That's the most important thing. So, at your site of injury, your little bit of thrombin does does more stuff. The platelet is activated by the thrombin is activated by the collagen, and that's where you get your, all your clotting factors coming together and producing this thrombin burst, which is this large amount of thrombin here. So the, the the purpose of the platelet is to do a couple of things, and it's to assemble all those bits in close proximity to each other. So if you don't have an activated platelet there, all the factors are all over the shop, and they don't get close enough together to actually work. The other thing the activated platelet will do is it'll, it'll activate other platelets by doing degranulation and, and all those sorts of things, um, and uh, the activated platelet itself will will amplify this whole process. So that extrinsic intrinsic pathway you learned, is still true, but it doesn't happen as discreetly as that. Uh, and the activated platelet, the platelet is far more important than we, than we gave it uh, than we used to think beforehand. So this is a the, uh, the the last bit is fibrinolysis. So your platelet here producing a small amount of thrombin, positive feedback, large amount of thrombin, fibrin clot. So when you no longer need that fibrin clot, which is normally kind of in a couple of days or something like that, then it's broken down by the action of plasmin to give fibrin degradation products, right? That's fibrinolysis. You probably, you all know that you should do, yes? And that's kept into control by this beast, TPA, which is released in the endothelium, which you all know because that's what we thrombolize people with. And TPA is kept in check by something else here called PI1. I'll come back to that in a minute. But this is the fibrinolytic pathway, all right? And that process is supposed to occur naturally, either when the clot is no longer required, but also downstream of the tissue injury. So uh, your tissue injury is here. You don't want everything to clot off downstream of it. So there are various pathways to stop that happening. One of them is the fibrinolytic pathway. The other bit of it is the anticoagulant pathway. So the protein C pathway, um, which occurs downstream of your tissue injury, will cause um, inhibition of your, uh, of your clotting factors. That's this bit over here. Come on there. So your protein C pathway inhibits factors 5 and 8. And then also your factor 10... So this is your clot initiation at the beginning. It's chomped up by antithrombin and, and tissue factor pathway inhibitor TFPI, which all happens downstream. You don't really need to remember all of that except to say you've now got a balance. Tissue injury, you're clotting, and downstream of that you've got anticoagulation, you've got fibrinolytis occurring. Yeah, And that balance keeps the clot at the site of injury and not over the rest of the body. But it's not even that simple. It's, it's, pr- it's not the extrinsic and the intrinsic pathway. It's probably something more akin to that. So... That's why they don't teach us medical school because there's no way you can examine that. And the whole point is, is that this, this is all clotting stuff here. This is all anti-clotting stuff. There's a whole load of adhesion molecules from endothelial activation. There's a whole load of more of those up there. Somewhere down here, we've got complement. We've got inflammatory pathways. And the whole, the whole thing is completely interlinked. And the, the point about showing this slide is if we try and affect one little bit of that, it's going to affect the whole lot. So if you try and affect inflammation, you're going to affect clotting. If you try and affect clotting, you're going to affect inflammation. Does that make sense? So that should, that, that's obviously not a revision because, um, that's not what you're taught, but that's more what clotting is about these days so uh, platelets are important if you don't have platelets you're not going to make clot and they're the sort of the central driver of the whole thing so coagulopathy, so we're going to talk about mainly trauma coagulopathy and there's lots of different terminology and as I understand it you've got trauma induced coagulopathy which is any coagulopathy that occurs after trauma and those are the mechanisms so the things you probably learned in the past dilution, if you just fill somebody up the crystalloid you're not going to have any clotting factors left therefore you can't make clot hyperthermia, acidosis, they impair the enzymes their consumption, if you use all your clotting factors up there's none left to make clot then we've got the endothelial effect. So if you, if I put some adrenaline in you, the flight or flight response. If I give you any sympathomimetic, you're going to do things. You're going to make clot. You're going to, and you're going to, you're going to make clot in certain bits. and You're going to take clot away, uh, increasing your anticoagulant pathway in other bits, depending on whether there's an injury there or not. So, you, so just the endothelial effects occur due to uh, low flow, due to high flow, due to catecholamines, due to all sorts of bits and pieces. We don't really understand how the endothelium works. It's uh, one of those organs, second largest organ in the body, after the skin, that's having increasing awareness about, but very, very little understanding. And then you've got this subset of people who've got this process called acute trauma coagulopathy. Does anybody know anything about acute trauma coagulopathy? So acute trauma coagulopathy is is a, uh, a discrete thing in its own right, that is a subset of trauma-induced coagulopathy. Okay, so trauma-induced coagulopathy is all of them—the dilution, the hypothermia, et cetera, And acute trauma coagulopathy is one little bit of it. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. Previously, and when ATLS was all around, we used to think that this is what coagulation is about. So you—you you, trauma, you got shock, you got acidosis, you got cold, you use all your clotting factors up, you then fill them up with lots of dilute cold crystalloid solutions, furthering your Cardiopathy. Now that that process of resuscitation, if you still resuscitate people with loads and loads of crystalloid, that will still occur. But we've moved away from that now to resuscitating people more with um, with uh, more FFP and, and stuff like that. And I'll, I'll go on to talk about that in a minute. The So coming back back to the causes, the endothelial effects, as I say, I sort of briefly went through that um, just now. But the endothelium. One of the things about the endothelium is it's not this sort of quiescent membrane that lines the, um, the blood vessels. It's a very active, very active thing. All sorts of stuff come out of it. So TPA comes out of it. Other things like thrombomodulin comes out of it. There's adhesion molecules. There's all, white cells that hit There's all sorts of things go along on the endothelium. And they talk, uh under when you got shock and you got stress about endothelial activation i'm not really sure what endothelial activation is i keep looking for a definition i can't really find anything but i think it's um the endothelium starts doing stuff you don't want it to do is basically all i can work it out to mean and i don't really understand how it works uh, and i don't think anybody particularly does but the point about the endothelial activation when we're talking about uh, acute trauma coagulopathy which is where it comes in is it begins to alter the balance of that coagulation, anticoagulation of fibrolytic pathways and that alteration in the balance does, it, very early on it will make you hypocoagulable so your clotting is bad but also in a day or two's time it's going to make you hypercoagulable which is when you're going to get your DVT and your PE and that's probably something to do with endothelial cell activation with which we, which we know nothing about. And the point about the activation is that it appears to get worse under times of tissue hypoxia. Now, if you read the literature properly, it says um, hypoperfusion. unclear to me whether hypoperfusion is poor oxygen delivery and hypoxia or whether it's low blood flow, because the way the blood flows over the endothelium also affects the way the clot generates. So I don't think we particularly know the answer to that. But of course, in trauma and hemorrhagic shock, you're going to have poor oxygen delivery with hypoxia, but you're also going to have low flow, which is going to have a problem as well. And that the reason for mentioning that should become apparent just now. So acute trauma coagulopathy Pretty well accepted now that this is a problem and that it is an entity in its own right which is a subset of the trauma-induced coagulopathy, and bottom line is, if you're coagulopathic, you do worse. So if you look at mortality and you divide them by injury severity score, the black—if you arrive with coagulopathy, which is the black bar, compared to arriving without coagulopathy, which is the white bar—you're more likely to die, and significantly more likely to die. So more than 15 is major trauma, and our, our military patients are around about here. So if you're if you're coagulopathic, then you know your mortality is four, five, six times higher. What are the mechanisms of that? Don't know is the answer. We think, there's lots of, there's lots of proposed theories, but this is what I, reading all the stuff, this is what I think it is. You get, uh, your clotting is activated because you get your tissue factor exposed, as is a normal process. And then you get clot produced. You've got quite a lot of tissue damage, so you consume quite a lot of your clotting factors. And if you look at the, the civilian literature, then a lot of your clotting factors will fall to around about 70%. Your factor five will fall a wee bit lower, and your fibrinogen will will fall quite a lot as well. So there seems to be a consumptive process going on, presumably caused by normal clotting. But with these levels of clotting factors, you should still be able to clot. The factor five is a wee bit low, but probably around about fifty percent of clotting factors, you should still be able to produce plenty of clots. So, but they're coagulopathic. Uh, sorry, the definition of coagulopathy. Changes depending on which paper you read, but I think it's reasonably well accepted. If your prothrombin time is one and a half times normal, that's a, that's a reasonably well accepted definition of coagulopathy. So the people who are coagulopathic have these sorts of low factor levels. They should be able to make clot, but but they're still coagulopathic. The the anticoagulate coagulant pathways, the protein C pathway, the antithrombin three levels all fall, presumably, and I say presumably, because they're being consumed, because the anticoagulant pathways are being ramped up, because they're trying to stop that clot clotting off the whole body. So that's a normal process. And you've got increased amounts of fibrinolysis, which again is a normal process, because you don't want that that clot to go around the whole body. So it appears that acute trauma coagulopathy is a normal process, but it's an exaggerated normal response, if when you add shock into that as well, it appears to be even worse. The shock tends to alter that exaggerated response. The evidence is increasing that shock is, is important. So if, you, if you've got increasing injury severity, which is the bottom one, then the amount of people with a prolonged PT increases. If you look that way... As your base deficit, so your base deficit is a marker of shock. A base deficit of greater than 6 is probably a, a definition of a shock patient. As your base deficit worsens, so the number of people with a raised PT worsens. And if you add the two together, so tissue injury and shock, then that's when you have lots of coagulopathic people. And of course, the trauma patients are kind of over here, aren't they? The shock's trauma patient is over here somewhere. So the theory now goes... This is this is Brohe's theory out of the Royal London. This is probably part of it rather than the whole story. So platelet drives clotting forward, small amount of thrombin is produced, positive feedback, large amount of thrombin produced, fibrin clot, normal clotting, right? What happens in shock is you get increased TPA produced. So the TPA is going to cause plasminogen to be converted to plasmin, and plasmin is going to break down that clot you also get increased amounts of thrombomodulin produced. The thrombomodulin will preferentially mop up this thrombin here to produce this complex thrombin-thrombomodulin which enhances the protein C pathway which causes anticoagulation and protein C inhibits this beast, pi-1. Low pi-1 allows TPA to occur unchecked. So your protein C pathway is allowing fibrinolysis to occur that way and is, is, is allowing anticoagulation to occur that way and that's caused by the activated endothelium producing more effects thrombomodulin and more TPA. That's the theory. Is anybody confused? Yeah it's very confusing and that's probably only part of the story. Unproven. I think what we do agree is that shock is important. How important is fibrinolysis? Well, if you look at D-dimers, so when you break down your clotting product or your clot, you make D-dimers. If you're shocked, you have increased amounts of D-dimers. So this is Bro here again using base deficit is worse than 6 as being definition of shock. So as your injury severity score increases, your amount of D-dimers increases. And if you're shocked on top of that, the amount of D-dimers increases. If you look at the prothrombin time, as your shock worsens and your injury severity worsens, so your coagulation is worse. So shock does appear to be important this is just the base deficit bit just the just the just the shock bit and the fibrinolytic fibrinolytic bit so the top graph base deficit getting worse d dimer is getting worse you can't measure plasmin in the blood so you can measure plasmin antiplasmin that's the antibody to plasmin so increased pap levels means increased plasmin levels increased plasmin means increased fibrinolysis so is your second graph down is your base deficit working so your pap worsens just have a quick look at this level here so base deficit of greater than 9 your PAP levels are around about twelve thousand. Here, I'll come back to that in a minute. And your systolic blood pressure, as it falls, so it's falling that way. Then so your PAP levels uh, rise. So shock, fibrinolysis, bad. So it's, it's increasing the evidence that um, that shock and this, this 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 theory of Brohe's is part of the process. Is fibrinolysis a problem? Yes. Um, he he the, he looked at. PAP levels and took two times normal as being severe fibrinolysis and just raised being moderate. Just, just a, a figure he plucked out of midair. Doesn't seem unreasonable, but you know, that's what he said. And, um, severe fibrinolysis, your mortality is worse. Severe fibrinolysis, you require more blood transfusion and you have an increased hospital length of stay. Or fibrinolysis in general, you have an increased hospital length of stay. So fibrinolysis is a, is a bad thing. Now that's, he's he's going down that pathway fibrinolysis is a bad thing and when we talk about the crash two trial in a minute we talk about fibrinolysis a lot i think it's part of the process the point being this whole anticoagulant this whole change in the in the normal process being affected by shock i think that's more important than one little bit the military patients, so we're doing some research, 55-minute um, pre-hospital time, uh, base deficit minus 11. If we look at their levels, so this is their PTs. This is a box and whisker plot. You should hopefully know what that is. So this is the median interquartile range and range. The the uh, the shaded area is the normal normal range. So they're coagulopathic because the PT is more than 1.5 times normal. Their fibrinogen is low. Their platelet count is normal. If we look at their factor levels, same as civilian trauma, factor levels around about 70% factor 10, 70% factor, f- factor 7, but factor 5, again, is low. And if we look at their, um, their fibrinolytic markers, their D-dimers, the upper limit of normal is 145, the median is 3,500, and the PAP is 7,000. Now, if you remember from the civilian data, there's a difference. Our data comes in there. So the base deficit was greater than nine, yet our D-dimer levels are less, and our base deficit is greater than nine, but our PAP levels are less. There's something different either about our patients or the way we do our business. And Bastion that's different from civilian trauma. Um, I don't know that it's the patient, although I can't. I think it's the way we the way we do it, um, because of our pre-hospital care system and all the rest of it that I think is different. And also we use pre-hospital tranexamic acid, which I'll talk about in a minute. So, um, but the bottom line is, it's very our patterns are very similar. So, when, when we leave Afghanistan and we want to look at civilian data, we can interpret that properly. That's the important bit about that from my point of view. Okay, so that's, that's clotting and coagulopathy. Does anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? Nobody? Perfect. Bottom line is, shock is bad. Okay, if you just remember that, shock is bad, and that coagulopathy after trauma is a normal process. But it's exaggerated, and all those responses, the fibrinolysis, the anticoagulation, the clotting, are all exaggerated normal responses made worse by shock. Yeah? So shock. I keep on going about shock. Shock is bad. So Stefan talked about this, um, most of this. Bleeding, uh, most most trauma deaths worldwide are caused by bleeding, and most trauma deaths in the operating room are caused by bleeding. And um, uh, a lot of that bleeding... It's potentially preventable. It's extremity hemorrhage that can be prevented with torn case and with pressure, or whatever. Obviously, internal bleeding is a bit more difficult, but um, bleeding is still a problem. This was the. Um, th- yeah, you just talked about this. You you lose if you lose blood, then you 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 have your various different phases. You get you know tachycardia, is increased systemic vascular resistance, and then you, and then you, uh, then you then you fall down and die. Um, I won't go through all this. This is the injury. Tissue injury and hemorrhage again. So if you have simple hemorrhage, heart rate goes up and falls. If you put tissue injury on top of it, this was this limb ischemia, then that response is attenuated and the mortality is worse for the people with tissue injury because of all the reasons it went through in the last lecture. So I won't bother going through all this. But what what Stefan did mention was that um, if you then prepare yourself to run away, you're then under he went like this. You're under perfusing your your all vital organs. So what do I? think that means. I think it means you're under perfusing quite a lot of your microcirculation. And the microcirculation is that that the capillary bed essentially. Um and we're not talking about our heart and lungs and, and brain. We're talking about muscles and, and gut essentially. So whilst we might perfuse, you know, our leg muscles so we can run away, we may maybe not perfusing other muscles. And those capillary beds remain shocked. So if we resuscitate somebody to a normal blood pressure or a radial pulse, let's say, of 90 millimetres of mercury, we're still really vasoconstricted, and we've vasoconstricted our, our gut, we've vasoconstricted our, our, um, our muscle beds. And if we then give them vasoconstriction by giving them some noradrenaline or some metaramiline or something like that, we're increasing the, uh, the vasoconstriction in those capillary beds, and we're therefore decreasing the perfusion to those capillary beds. And our numbers look good but our shock is worsening because we're not actually perfusing most of you know, the, the bowel and all that sort of stuff. It's one of the reasons why we don't like to use vasopressors in hemorrhagic shock after trauma. It becomes more complicated in a head-injured patient, but that's one of the reasons why. So there's a paper in the Lancet last year. They tried to illustrate this, and they basically said this was a healthy microcirculation. So they've got an arteriole, you've got a venial, you've got a capillary bed, and inside here you've got yeah, clotting factors, white cells, red cells, platelets, and you've got a normal looking interstitium. The endothelium here is nice and quiet looking, and that's all, it all looks good. Everything's in balance. But if you put hemorrhage on top, you first of all, you decrease your perfusion pressure here. You also start to sequester the fluid from the interstitium, so that becomes dehydrated. And then you start to activate the endothelium, because you've got a low flow state, which begins to get a bit leaky. Your white cells come out, you get clotting. Um, produced because crossing and inflammation are linked together, and inflammation is going to occur because you've got tissue injury, and there's all sorts of badness happens. And um, if you look at the inflammatory response to trauma, as, as opposed to just the coagulation response, the inflammatory bit is all worsened. You get complement, um, free radical, white cell, all that sort of stuff. And again, that's also worsened in the presence of shock. So shock doesn't worsen just your clotting bit, it worsens your inflammatory bit as well, which is not really a surprise when you consider that horrible the horrible picture I showed of how clotting and inflammation are linked. So if we're going to talk about shock and the endothelium and shock and the inflammation, do we have any evidence that uh, it does bad things to the endothelium, particularly in the microcirculation? So... Lining the endothelium is the endothelial glycocalyx, which is a sort of a, a sugary thing on the inside. I don't really know what it is, but it stops the uh, stops the blood coming into contact fully with the endothelium and sort of protects it and protects the white cells and doing all sorts of stuff. And it contains all these funny proteins and sugars and what have you. If you look at one of those particular ones, Syndicam 1, that's interesting that in trauma at the minute, it's just, it's a particular, it's a particular glycoprotein that goes across the endothelium, across the, um, the glycocalyx and goes into the blood. And it shouldn't be in the blood, it should be attached to the endothelium. So if you can measure it in the blood, it's been knocked off. Okay, and it gets knocked off the, end, the glycocalyx because either you've damaged it, which is, uh, or, or you've got adrenaline, or you've got the shock, or you've got low flow, all these things tend to, uh, tend to affect it. So, they looked at this. Is um, they, they looked in a group of trauma people. They looked at their injury severity score. So less than 16 is low, moderate 17 to 27, and high. And they measured inflammatory markers. So cytokine one, damage-associated molecular protein. So, so if you've got damage to the endothelium, and something is now in the blood when it shouldn't be, it's a molecular protein that's there that shouldn't be there, which is there because of damage. So it's damage-associated molecular protein. So there are various things. I'll talk about hmgb one in a minute and mitochondrial DNA. You don't need to remember all this stuff. It's just that if I'm going to show them, then I, I should mention them. So your mitochondrial DNA should be in your mitochondria. If it's in your bloodstream the mitochondria has been damaged, if it's been damaged because someone's been blown up, then it's that's that's what a damp is. If it's there because of a pathogen, so a bacterial infection, that's then called a PAMP, a pathogen associated with it. Really? Are you confused? I said you're going to be confused. You should be confused. So anyway... What they, what they looked at in this paper was the syndical one which should not be in the blood it should be attached to glycocalyx so if it's in the blood then you've got glycocalyx degradation and They they arbitrarily put those to high or to low and the two groups depending on their injury severity score were the same for everything else but the people who um, had increased catecholamines, increased inflammation, increased damps, also had increased glycocalyx degradation. So, it's just associating the degree of injury and the degree of inflammatory response to this beast, Syndicam 1. But this is the important bit. If you had increased damage to your endothelium, you had increased mortality. Okay. Hooray. It's probably not rocket science. It's probably reasonably, um, it's probably reasonably obvious, isn't it really? That wasn't what I wanted to show you. Oh no, bit's gone. I must have put it in the wrong bit. And then, right, I've will to come back to that because the, the next set bit of slides must be further Well, I hope they're further on. Um, right, okay. So uh, we, we're going to come back to cinder and the glycocalyx. But I think the point about that is that shock and injury and damage increases damage to the glycocalyx and increases damage to your... Uh, endothelium, which is going to increase your inflammatory response, and your inflammatory response is also coagulopathy. Bad, isn't it? We talked a little bit in the last section about hypotensive, uh resuscitation. The theory being that if you if you made something normotensive, that any clot they had produced got popped off and they bled to death. It's a load of bollocks, by the way. Make their um. Bring their blood pressure up to normal, but it will make their shock worse. And the question is, is: Is prolonged shock a problem? Yes, it is. So this is some work we do at Porton Down. This is I'm doing a reading from an MD at Porton Down, and we've got we do some animal work. And what we do is we have a, a pig model which we uh, we hemorrhage, and we certain explosion off near it. So we, we take it to the range, we we put a blast off near it, so they got a blast injury, we then bleed at 30% of the blood volume, we leave it for five minutes to be shocked, which is supposed to be mimicking, uh, remember this is military stuff, it's supposed to be mimicking um, the guys winning the firefight and not, let, not no treatment happening. Then they have resuscitation to 80 millimeters of mercury, and then after an hour, which is supposed to be when that casualty would either get back to the hospital or they'd get a doctor to them, um... They either remain hypotensive or go normotensive. Okay, so essentially you've got, in a blast hemorrhage model, you've got prolonged hypotension, or you've got hypotension, then normotension. Okay? And unsurprisingly, so this is a Kaplan Meyer survival curve, so this is all animals alive, all animals dead, and this is time of the experiment. The blue line here are the hypotensive people, so apart from spider pig here, who managed to survive <laughs> all the way out, the rest of them all died which is not so good, because if you're dead before you get to hospital, then there's nothing we can do for you. Whereas the ones who are resuscitated survive longer. So based on this work and some other work, we, um, we've, we've altered our pre-hospital resuscitation guidelines. So after an hour, if you're still pre-hospital after an hour, you get resuscitated with crystalloid to a normal blood pressure. Um, so we think prolonged hypertension is bad. And if you look at this in more detail at the base excess, so for those of you who are confused between base excess and base deficit, does anybody know the difference between base excess and base deficit? The plus and minus sign. That's all it is. One is the amount of acid required to bring the pH to normal, or the bicarb normal. One is the amount of base required. And so, so it's the plus or minus. They're the same numbers, but a, a base excess and negative base excess is the same as a positive base deficit. Okay. So, where earlier I've been talking about a base deficit of greater than six being bad for you, a base excess of greater than minus six is bad for you. So just. Just in case you get confused. So th- this one, this graph is basic sets. So negative numbers are bad. And if you look at the, um, unfortunately I couldn't take two of the, the, the groups off. So our pigs were either resuscitated, normal temp tension or hypotension. They're either blasted or they weren't. So if you look at just the blast group, so that's the blue and the red line, the hypo, the blast hypotensive group their base success worsened and worsened and worsened, and it continued to deteriorate till they died. If you look at the, the normotensive group during this bit, where they the first hour, which if you remember they were hypotensive, when we when we switched their blood pressure target, their base success improved. Likewise, their oxygen extraction follows the same thing. So, bringing the blood pressure up seems to do things to your base excess in your oxygen extraction. Now, shock, of course, is um, inability of the body to deliver oxygen to the vital organs. So the way you increase oxygen to the vital organs is increase oxygenation, but also increase perfusion. And if you don't do that, you get anaerobic respiration, you get lactic acidosis, and you get a worsening base excess. So this implies to me that if we bring their blood pressure up, we're, we're, de- we're beginning to pay off our oxygen debt, and we're reversing the basic set, which means we must be improving tissue perfusion and therefore reversing the shock that's there. Would you, would you agree with that? If you can follow any of what I've said? Yeah, whatever. If we then look at their cl- clotting. Same pigs, okay, so the, the hypotensive group, the normotensive group, and it's difficult to see in this graph, but there's a difference in their PT between that and that. So what this graph is, it's it's the it's the change in, in prothrombin time from between their, their baseline and, and, and their worst prothrombin time. So the, the, those who are novel hybrids, those who, are, who had normotensive resuscitation, they didn't get as coagulopathic as the hypotensive ones. And if we look at the interleukin-6, so interleukin-6 is an inflammatory marker, if you were resuscitated to novel hybrids normal tension, you, you had less inflammatory markers, less, pe- less inflammation going on than if you resuscitated hypotensively. So if I haven't convinced you that shock and prolonged shock is bad, then you really have been asleep, which is not a problem. I don't care if you're asleep or not, but, um, hopefully that's, be able to convince you. We talked about damps, damage associated molecular proteins, and I said this one, HMGB1, you don't need anything about it except that it shouldn't be in the bloodstream. Okay, and if you this this is the blast group. Um, so this, these are the individual animals. Okay, and you can kind of see, oh, come on, that, that it's kind of rising. Now they all die here, of course. But if they hadn't died, apart from Spider Pig, if they hadn't died. The, you'd see, imagine those were going up there, yeah? Would you agree? And the novel hybrid groups, the group that resuscitated, the the damps weren't as high. Yeah. Now we get back to our syndican bits. Okay, so the syndican is another one of these damps, okay? And this is um, the group out of North America, and they had a look, and... Oh, you can't see the bottom of that. Um, but they looked at the people pre- and post-resuscitation. So there's a control group. These are trauma people. They took their admission syndican levels and their post-resuscitation syndican levels. So these guys obviously survived. So we're not saying, you know, there's a bit of survivor but But you can see that resuscitation brought their peak syndecan levels down. Syndicans are an, are an endothelial marker, which associated with inflammation, you know, all that, all that things associated with each other. They then took, they then did a model where they took some, um, umbilical cells and they either kept them normoxic or they made them hypoxic and then resuscitated them with, um, with either lactated ringers, which is Hartman's solution essentially, or with fresh frozen plasma okay so you've got a normoxic group which is your control group then you've got hypoxic group hypoxic with with hartman's hypoxic with ffp yeah so your normoxic group were here so fairly low levels if you make them um if you make them uh, hypoxic then they had increased levels of syndecan. so hypoxia tissue shock increasing your syndican expression there for your Damaged your endothelium. If you resuscitated them with lactated ringers, you improved that. Hooray! But if you resuscitated the FFP, that improvement is even more. So resuscitation is good. FFP appears to be better than than lactated ringers. Now I've got no idea how to interpret these. So what the paper says, and you just have to t- either take my word for it or disagree. And if you disagree, I can't refute it because I'm just I don't understand these. They they took some pictures. Okay, the, the, the normoxic controls then the the ones that were resuscitated with um, the ringers lactate and those are resuscitated with FFP. Or they're looking at, is it project- can you see that little white line there? They're saying that white line shows the gaps between the cells are what are they're, they're narrower in the resuscitated group. They're narrower than in the sort of wrong. Sorry, that's the normotic group. Those gaps there in the in the lactated ringers are not as narrow as that gap there with that little white line in the FFP. Now that seems to be me to be a bit of witchcraft and I'm not entirely sure I believe it but I put it up there because according to this paper if you're going to resuscitate people then FFP is better for you than, um, than ringers and the reason that I'm interested in that is we resuscitate everybody with FFP and we get a lot of grief from it and I can now go like that to them and they also then looked at the syndecan on the endothelium so if you remember your syndican should be attached to your endothelial cell if it's not attached to your endothelial cell <coughs> it's in the blood So in their normoxic controls, there's lots of fluorescence because the syndican is attached to the endothelium. And in the hypoxic group, it's not attached to the endothelium because it's been shed off, because it's damaged, and therefore there's not much fluorescence. And you can see that once they're resuscitated with plasma, there's an improvement compared to lactated ringers. So just more evidence from this one paper that FFP is a better way of resuscitating people after hypoxic... Technically, a hypoxic reperfusion injury, which is essentially what you're getting after shocks. So you become hypoxic, you get all this badness occurring in your endothelium. You then we then fill them up, and you then get a reperfusion injury. It's that reperfusion that's bad because that's when you get all the, the white cell activation and all the inflammatory response. Sirs, you all heard. You know what, Sirs, is systemic inflammatory response. Yeah, you get a hit, and then you um, get a second hit, and a third hit, and then you die. You get multi-organ failure. and It's bad for you. When you get your SERS, you also get an anti-inflammatory response. So you get your inflammatory response, the body goes, oh bollocks, that's really bad for me, I need to do something about that. So you then get an anti-inflammatory response to compensate for it. Okay? So you get your red inflammatory response and then you get your anti-inflammatory response. And during your anti-inflammatory response, your, the, what your cells express, your <coughs> genomic expression can change allegedly up to about 70% about so what the functions of that cell actually does. And that CARS, the compensatory anti-inflammatory response is when all the badness happens. If you then get a second hit because we let the surgeons loosen you and they butcher you to death, then you get a worse inflammatory response, another anti-inflammatory response, and that's when you get your multi-organ failure and die. Okay, that's very bad for you. And what this particular group theorised was that... Can you say theorised? Is that a word? Anyway, what they reckoned was if you can restore that genomic expression rapidly... Okay, then you get the uncomplicated recovery. And if you can't, then you get a complicated recovery. And in fact, the inflammatory response and the anti-inflammatory response occur simultaneously. So in your uncomplicated outcome, which is a solid line, you get an anti-inflammatory response. We get on top of that very quickly. It's short. It's not very profound and so your anti-inflammatory response which is the bad bit is short not very profound and if you don't do it quickly then your inflammatory response is worse and so your anti-inflammatory response is worse yeah that's the theory so what does all of that mean it means shock is bad for you because it's going to damage your endothelium when it's damaged your endothelium it's going to do bad things for your inflammatory processes of which clotting is an inflammatory process. We know that if we look at just the clotting part of that inflammatory process, we know that if you're coagulopathic after trauma, you do worse. We also therefore assume from the increasing evidence of the syndicans and whatever that the inflammatory part after trauma is bad for you as well. And it looks like potentially if you can resuscitate effectively, you can. You can decrease that inflammatory response. If you can decrease the inflammatory response, presumably, and I say presumably because so we don't know, presumably you're also going to improve your coagulation response. Does that, make, does, that does that make any sense? Is anybody not because that, that actually is what I've been trying to say for the last however long it's been. I could have said it in one slide, I'm couldn't you I? you're, saying resuscitation. Um, you're meaning normotensive resuscitation. I'm just saying resuscitation at the minute. Probably. Well, we've been that yet, but, uh, well, you will be actually probably because you'll be the first responder, and uh, you'll ring you'll me. Get told off the tells us that yeah, that's because they're a bunch of wankers. Yeah, I so don't know what to talk about. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. I'm on podcast sometimes <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know the answer about which sort of resuscitation yet. My personal view is that once you're in hospital and you've got the only reason not to have hyper, the only reason to have hypertensive resuscitation is because bringing up the blood pressure increases the flow, increases the flow, and makes you bleed more. When you're in hospital, you've got the ability to stop bleeding. And if bringing up the pressure makes you bleed more, you should be in the operating room. If you're not in the operating room, you're getting it wrong. Or in the interventional radiology suite. So I think that in hospital, I think there's no place for hypertensive resuscitation because we've got the ability to deal with it. That's my view. Pre hospital, I don't know the answer to. And I'm not so gonna. The guys to get the guy to theatre in minutes versus what? Well, you've obviously worked at a different hospital to me. And I work here because uh, that never happens. There's always too much mucking about. It's better now than it used to be. It's, it's, quick, it's quick. My understanding is it's going to be quicker in a military. Bastion oh, you're talking about Bastion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, this, that's what we thats all we do. Yeah, so I thought you were talking about Derriford. Now, Derriford, you should, we should have the ability to get in there in minutes, but it doesn't, because it takes ten minutes to get to the bloody operating theatres. And then we've got the decisions we made on top of it. We're getting better here, but that's... Uh, but, yeah, prevarication kills is the—is our... The defence of pressure of surgery is his thing. So, does, would, would people take my train of thought? I mean, it's the world according to Tom. I'm not saying I'm right. I am, of course. But, you know, that's... that. Do you understand? In spite of all the science and crap behind there, it's a, it's a view, and we don't know what we're talking about, but that's my train of thought, that inflammation is bad, clotting is part of inflammation, it's made worse by hypoxia, there is some increasing evidence that if we can get on top of the hypoxia quickly by some form of resuscitation, we'll probably uh, improve the inflammatory response, which will improve outcomes. That's my theory. That's the, that's the theory. Yeah. So how are we going to do it? God well that's a different question. So this is what we do UK military use a massive transfusion protocol with a ratio of 1 pack cell to 1 FFP with targeted platelets and cryoprecipitate. The US use a, use 1 to 1 to 1 to 1 so they just they, they do it that way. So they would use for every you know, the US is slightly different. The US platelets are six pools of platelets whereas we're four pool for four pools of platelets and the cryo is a five pool. So they're going to do something like five pack cells 5ffp one platelets one cryo yeah whereas we're going to do four pack cells 4ffp and then we're going to consider targeting a use of platelets at that point and cryo at that point that's 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 not how we do it but that's what our policy says the civvies dispute this because they reckon the data, which is poor, it's retrospective, and it spans massive transfusion policies. It's historical because we used a lot of crystal in those times. So everyone knows all the limitations with that. But the the data doesn't support one-to-one over other ratios like one-to-two. So that would be... Um, sorry, I put the PRBC and FFP the wrong way around. So that would be um, one FFP to two pack cells, or one FFP to three... Three pack cells, or we, or even two. We don't really know. Okay, and the reason it's important, the dispute's important, is because there's a logistical burden to giving FFP, as well as an in, in infection risk and all the rest of it. So, the haematologists will tell you the way we do our business is appalling, except our patients survive. And um, but it's because all to do with the infection thing. Come back to that. This paper looked at. Um, I haven't put the graphs in. I thought I had. There's a, there's, a, there's a study out of Denver that looks at survivability in retrospective data at ratios of one to one. So if they happen to have had one to one or one to two or one to three, they looked at the survivability as a U shape with the best survival at one to two. Okay. But there, there's all sorts of problems with these, um, studies because, uh, most people have to thaw their FFP. So if, it, if you arrive in hospital, let's say you get your packed cells in 10 minutes but it takes you another know, 40 minutes to get your FFP, there's a 30-minute window where a lot of people die without getting any FFP. So therefore, they have a different ratio of those who survive to 35 minutes and get four units of FFP. And and if you're going to survive to 35 minutes, the chances are you're going to survive anyway. So in order to get your FFP, you have to survive. So there's a, there's a, there's a, Does that make sense? There's a survivor bias. And so people... People don't really quite know how to interpret it. So which is why the data's poor. There's two massive studies happening in North America looking at these ratios and they're doing it prospectively, randomizing people to high or low ratio FFP and whatever. So we'll know the answer at some point. Um but if you this paper looked at the clotting and it looked purely at the um clotting indices using rotem, and uh they said that if the, the in order to reverse your coagulation you used a ratio of 1 to 2 or 3 to 4, and there was no advantage of 1 to 1 over anything else. Okay, So if you're looking purely at reversing coagulopathy, there's no evidence that 1 to 1 is of any benefit over 2 to 3 or 3 to 4. And if you're looking at the retrospective data from everywhere else, they say a ratio of 1 to 2 is better than 1 to 1 anyway. Too many ratios in there. Does that make sense to anybody? So 1 to 1 is bad, 1 to 2 is good. That's what they're basically saying. The old way... Two units two litres of crystalloid, followed by maybe some pat cells, followed by maybe some FFP is appalling, and everybody accepts that. So we all agree that lots of FFP compared to what we used to do is better, but the exact ratio is unclear. I have to. I, the reason I tell you that is because I'm going to have. I, I'll show you if I have time, and I'm going to stop in ten minutes, regardless of where I've got to. Um, I'm going to show you that lots of FFP is good, uh, but the labs here may or may not like it, but you, you, if you give FFP, you are giving somebody an organ donation, is what they say, and so you've got to be aware of the infection risk associated with that. Anyway, by the bye What's our, what are our goals of resuscitation? I think we should be targeting the microcirculation. That is our end organ we're interested in. That's the bit where all the badness comes from. So what I need to resuscitate is out. So I've got nice warm fingertips. I've got a nice, well-perfused gut. If I resuscitate to a normal blood pressure, all that means is I've given lots of noradrenaline and my numbers are normal, but my perfusion to my gut and everywhere else is poor. If my perfusion to my gut is poor, when I do resuscitate them, then all that badness is going to come out and they're going to do it very badly. So my, I need to aggressively get on top of the... The, the tissue perfusion. So, in the early stages, we use a massive transfusion protocol. When they come into the emergency department, we've got no idea what's going on. We don't know anything about the patient. We've got no lines in, so we're going to go down for some protocol-driven treatment. That's entirely reasonable. And those are allegedly our targets. Okay, in a bleeding patient, this is it's different to a um, different to a non-bleeding patient. So why? So, all massive transfusion protocols are one-to-one because. The reason it's one to one is because you want to get stuff, you don't know where you're starting from. So you've got to get some stuff in because it makes sense. Because if you can give one to one, then you're replacing what you've lost. That's the theory. Um, and, uh, so if you've lost whole blood, you've lost platelets, fibrinogen, pack cells, and FFP. So you might as well give that back. Okay. We talked about all that, didn't we? Our, our operational policy letter. Says we can give one-to-one resuscitation based on various things: presence of shock. That's the same as Derriford's hospital massive transfusion policy, based on the presence of coagulopathy and based on the level of support required to maintain the casualty. So when you're on the wards, when you're in the emergency department, if someone comes in and they've got a normal pulse and normal pressure, normal blood pressure, they've had trauma and look like shit, you should be really thinking about resuscitating them because we know that the vital signs are poor and the level of support, because you're worried, is high. Yeah, that's, that's how I interpret that. It's one of the reasons I think why Derriford uses much more O negative than anywhere else in the country is because we get on top of things very quickly and the blood, the, the lab are unable to provide us with the type specific blood in the time frame with, with, that we want and so we, so we, we're under a bit of pressure because of our O negative use is so high compared to the rest of the country. So this is our massive transfusion policy and shock packs you will know about shock packs is what the mass transfusion policy is here no who doesn't know about shock packs you all know what shock packs are so if you ask for a shock pack you're going to get oh come on four red cells and four ffp or whatever it is going to be here two and two and it's likely to be young blood less than 14 days old because there's some evidence to say that that helps if you ask for a second shock pack you're going to get your platelets okay so, if you remember, I said UK platelets are four, a four pool. So that means you're giving platelets in a one to one to one ratio now. And if you're asked for a third shot pack, you're going to get cryo as well, which is probably should be up there because it's, What's this, is this, this is, this is Bastion. But the reason this is in is because I forgot to get the hemorrhage policy and put it in my presentation. So thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> Worry about hypocalcemia. The citrate in your blood and FFP. So if you give lots of citrate, you're going to chelate all the calcium in your body and your calcium will f- drop through the floor. So keep an eye on your calcium. If you need to take blood gases every 10 minutes and do it, they, I don't, I think the liver will cope with a unit of the citrate in the unit of blood every 10 minutes. If you're giving a unit of blood or FFP greater than every 10 minutes, you get citrate toxicity and your citrate will chelate your calcium and your calcium will plummet. Calcium plummets, you lose your blood pressure. So, um. Somebody hypotensive that you can't do anything about, give some calcium, uh, and then hyperkalemia as well. But if you also notice, where is it? Yeah, oops. Other stuff. Tranexamic acid. I'm going to talk about in a minute. I've waffled on for far too long. Whole blood is still dilute. It's a matter of interest. If you take whole blood, if I took some blood out of you, it would have a much of. 40%, platelets a couple of hundred thousand and 100% of clotting factors if I give you 1 to 1 to 1 you're going to end up with a matched of 30% platelets of 88 and only about 65% of clotting activity so even whole blood is dilute. so if you've lost whole blood and you're not giving whole blood back in its component parts, and you're giving crystalloid you're going to get increased dilution and forget the acute trauma coagulopathy or that inflammation stuff you're going to get dilution of clotting factors and coagulopathy because of that anyway Oh, there's the graph. Clearly, I haven't paid much attention to this talk. So there's the graph here. So the ratio of um, one to two is when your mortality was at its best. I won't talk about that. I won't talk about that. I won't talk about that. So this is um, blood pressure. Okay, if you've got a a normal blood pressure up here, right? And you lose a bit of blood volume, then you maintain your blood pressure, which is what we talked about in the response to hemorrhage, okay? But as soon as you start to decompensate, that's really bad. And you, it takes, it's a real struggle to get your blood pressure back up by giving fluid, yeah? Do you understand that sort of hysteresis? That's basic physiology you'd have in med school, yeah? It makes sense? You could argue, physiologically it's not correct, but you could argue it's similar to true clotting. So, 100% of clotting factors, you can go down to, let's, I don't know, 50%, just 20% here, but you can go down to a fraction of your clotting factors and still maintain your hemostatic competence. But once you become coagulopathic, it's real struggle to get back up. So coagulopathy, uh, you need to get on top of quickly. And the reason that you need to get on top of it quickly is if you're coagulopathic, you've also got profound inflammatory response. If you've got a profound inflammatory response, you've got a profound compensatory anti inflammatory response, which means you're going to do badly. So, coagulopathy is, in my mind, a symptom of, or a sign of, of inflammation. And so, you should, um, you should treat it aggressively. So, your bleeding patient is going to have different guidelines, different targets, your non bleeding patient. Uh, no, forget that. I'll come back to that. I'm going to show you, um, I'm going to talk very briefly about TXA, then I'll show you, um, uh, the way th- a patient I did last year out in Afghanistan. Just as you're not going to do it here, but it's just a, an illustration of, of how quickly you can get on top of things. So tranexamic acid. Who knows about the CRASH 2 trial? Anybody? Who's heard of tranexamic acid? What have you heard about it for? It's used for period pain, headaches, um, other in. I'm about to say other innocuous stuff. I'm not suggesting for a moment period pains are innocuous, but I'll be in a lot of trouble if I said that. But for other relatively benign things. You can go and buy it over the counter in Japan. It's a fairly common drug in its tablet form. And it's, it is, and, um, there's been some increased interest in it recently in, in trauma. So CRASH-2, they, they it was but one of the only decent bits of evidence in trauma. 20,000 patients randomised worldwide, mostly not in North America, which is well, why the North Americans don't believe it. And they basically said that tranexamic acid giving, if you were going to bleed after trauma, especially if you got the tranexamic acid early, that your morta- mortality was, was improved. Oh, this hasn't come out, has it? Your mortality has improved. So tranexamic acid was a good thing. Okay, so this is our data from from Afghanistan. So we looked at people. This is this is pre and post the crash to trial publication. So uh, we weren't giving it protocolised, and we found we just looked at people who had a unit of blood, and if they had tranexamic acid or not. If they had tranexamic acid, they did better, but they're, they they had more PEs, more DVTs. Now, why is that? Well, if you're going to switch off the fibrinolysis, maybe you're going to make them clot more. Um, and that's that's one of the reasons North Americans don't like it. But that bit you can't see. They were also sicker, had more blood products. At the time, they're using recombinant factor 7, and they're in the operating room for longer. But if you look at their mortality, their mortality is significantly different. So it's for the uh, 48 hours and 28-day group. And if you look at the Kaplan-Meier survival curve of them, where's that gone? So the people who had tranexamic acid here, the people who had tranex didn't have it there. And if you remember, this is all alive, and here we've only got 70% dead. And over time, the Kaplan-Meier survival curve splits, and it remains split. That means that the effect is prolonged, and that's good. So tranexamic acid is good. This is anybody who had a unit of blood in Bastion? If you just look at those people who had massive transfusion, that effect is even more. So if you're going to bleed, you want tranexamic acid. Okay? Does it cause problems? Well, this is the Crash 2 data again. I'm, f- I'm afraid with the it hasn't come out for some reason, I'm not quite sure why. But um what it's supposed to say here, you'll if you could see it all, was the, uh, the thromboembolic events are no worse than tranexamic acid group. And in fact, arterial thromboembolic events are lower in the tranexamic acid group than in the non-tranexamic acid group, implying it's safe. The critics of this would say there was no routine follow-up for DVTs. Um, there was no screening process. It was mostly done in places like Colombia and Africa where you know they didn't care. Well, my view is, well, if they survived and they had a non-clinically significant DVT, I don't care. <coughs> but that's the difference in North America and um, the UK. So is it safe? Probably safe. Should he use it like water? Yes, he probably should. But how does it work? Because its effect was greatest at 48 hours and 28 days, if you remember. It wasn't at now when it's supposed to be affected in that fibrinolytic pathway. Because tranexamic acid also... So tranexamic acid blinds to plasmin, right? And it doesn't allow plasmin to, to bind to the, the clot. Come on. But by stopping plasmin, also plasmin also affects inf- inflammation, complement, uh, activates the endothelium via thrombin. Tranexamic acid also um, will have fibrinogen lysis, so it'll your fibrinogen, and your fibrinogen goes down early in trauma. And so if you can switch that off, maybe you leave a bit more fibrinogen there available to make clot. So there's all sorts of other stuff going on, but tranexamic acid probably works as an anti-inflammatory hence going back to our inflammatory inflammation being the the the, the target of our um, the resuscitation Rotem is a machine that measures blood whole blood clotting it's supposed to give a trace that this is a stylized trace um Normal Rotem looks like that. I'm just going to so I'm going to show you some Rotems. I'm just going to tell you. So you run two tests: an X10 and a fib And looking at those, I'll be able to tell you whether they can clot. Um, the green line at the beginning uh, here is clot initiation. So that's factors. If that's long, it means you've got no clotting factors. So your PT would be prolonged, and you, you can't clot. This bit here is the strength of the clot, in it's fibrinogen and platelets and the, how they function. So if you don't have functioning fibrinogen or platelets, you have a, you have a narrow one. Uh, a narrow line a narrow graph here, and this one is just the fiber integer, but you look at them in nice in, in in you look at them together, so basically just for, for the pres- the case report uh if it looks like a red wine glass on its side, that's good yeah that's the argument if it looks like a champagne flute with a long stem at the beginning, come on cursor Ugh, don't do it. So you've got a long green scent at the beginning, it's narrow, then that's bad. So this is a this is a case from last year that I had uh bilateral amputation, his left leg had been ripped off, he had a a hole coming up into his pelvis, and he had a, a hole in his common isolated vein, and we took a lump of clay like that out of his pelvis, that had been forced up through the blast. He had um he came into hospital at 1744. This is hours after admission on the top. Each of these red dots is a red cell and the yellow dots is an FFP corresponding to an hourly total here and then a running total here. The green dot will be, um, will be, uh, platelets and the blue dots will be precipitate. So this is how I think you should treat a, ble- a, a bleeding trauma patient. Um, First of all, he came in with a base deficit of minus 27, platelet count 60, and he had a champagne flute, uh, rotem showing he was already coagulopathic. And this bottom one here, uh, this bottom one here is fibrinogen, that's very narrow, so he had low fibrinogen already. So we know he had low fibrinogen, he had low platelet count, he was coagulopathic, he was very sick. So we gave him, in the first hour, 15 units of pack cells, 15 units, 16 units of FFP, but more importantly, in the first hour, three units of platelets and three of cryoprecipitate. So we got on top of it very early, okay, on top of the clotting bit very early because we knew he was already low. So we targeted our resuscitation using Rotem. And we were pretty aggressive in our fluid management, I think you'd agree. That's 15, 30, that's, what's that, nearly 40 units in an hour. So that's a unit of blood product every, what's that, 90 seconds or something for an hour. It's quite hard work. So anyway, but the, can you do that here? am not sure you can. But we did that and we got a normal Rotem. So that's our red wine glass, okay. And after, so this is an hour and 15 minutes after admission and we're still struggling. Our base deficit is minus 17, which is still an improvement from minus 27. Um, the bleeding is now controlled because the surgeons have got in there and they've put clamps in the aorta and all that sort of stuff. So we've now got controlled bleeding. Um, but we've got an under resuscitated patient and we want to get on top of that resuscitation quickly because he's in hemorrhagic shock. And um, so that we can dampen down that inf- that peak inflammatory response. And then we can dampen down that anti-inflammatory response. That's the goal, right? And what we're, what we're interested in resuscitating is the microcirculation. So we're not using any vasopressors. His blood pressure is fine because we're chucking blood in through a level 1 infuser. Every time our blood pressure comes up, it means that I've filled up a little bit of the central compartment. So I'm now going to vasodilate his by giving me a load more fentanyl, turning my anaesthetic up, the blood pressure is going to go down, I'm going to give more fluid. I'm going continue to do that until it seems to me that y- you must have learned to, before um, the old way of resuscitating people. We give fluid, if the blood pressure stays high, they're full, but if you give fluid and their blood pressure starts to tail off, they're underfilled, yeah? That's all we're doing. That's exactly what we're doing. But when our blood pressure is normal, we don't say they're filled, we say they're filled but vasoconstricted, we want to vasodilate them now, so that we can then fill up that space we've now made. So we can't do that with the surgeons there, because they're causing more harm. They've done the bit they need to do. They've saved the life by stopping the bleeding. They've got loads of surgery to do, but we can't do it because the patient's dying. So we send them out of the operating room for an hour and a quarter, while we continue to resuscitate very aggressively, and we let them back in when we've got... That's minus 11. So there's a 30-minute lag on base deficit, probably, but our pH is normal. There's our pH, 7.25. Playlets are good haemoglobin, so remember our bleeding trauma patient plate count over 100 we're going to have more bleedings, we've overshot that slightly, haemoglobin at 10 pH normal had quite a lot of transfusion there and ultimately he gets a pretty aggressive resuscitation, however this is the bit where we send the surgeons out here, this is the bit where we where we've resuscitated, so after we've resuscitated the rate of transfusion is much less. There's a little flurry of excitement here where we rip a hole in the iliac vein, which wasn't good. Um, but then it's all pretty quiet after that. So early aggressive resuscitation, targeting the microcirculation, targeting shock in order to dampen down our inflammatory response. What were your fed like, uh? <gasps> Fresh whole blood. We won't talk about that. We can't do that over here. So we bled the raw, we bled some Marines, US Marines and just gave the blood straight back to the patient. Um, so this is our surgical pause here so before our surgical pause well, our base deficit is minus 20 our pH is low it's improving but if, if you if you try to book a patient for the operating room and you said oh, I've got a patient with base deficit of minus 20 I'll tell you to go away and resuscitate him so th- at this point here the beginning of the surgical pause we the surgeons can stop and we can resuscitate by the time we come back here We've got decent haemoglobin, decent platelet count, base deficit's okay, pH is normal. And now we can start some pretty benign elective surgery, if you like, at that point. Uh, So what am I trying to say? Get on top of it early, dampen down the inflammatory response. How are you going to do that? By resuscitating. What's the best way to resuscitate them aggressively, preferably using as little crystalloid as possible. Early on, you're going to use lots of FFP and lots of uh, packed cells. There's a problem about doing that. and you'll have to justify yourself to the hematologist, but FFP in my view is a better resuscitation fluid than anything else. If you get on top of that quickly, you're going to treat the coagulopathy, which is a symptom of inflammation. So if you treated the coagulopathy, you've treated the inflammation. If you treat the inflammation, you're going to improve their survival. That guy died, of course, which just makes that whole thing wrong. But he did die three weeks later back at home um in the US with his family by his bedside. And i warrant that he would he would be dead a long time before that if uh if we hadn't resuscitated him in that way. So that's what I had to say about management of bleeding patient, and it's lunchtime. And ask as many questions you want, but as they say at Santos, so you're in your own time now.